credit for something you didn't do? Every husband right now should be saying yes. Because someone, someone compliments you, oh, your children are so polite, and you say, well, thank you, as if you had anything to do with that. You know, you're, you're, someone, someone will tell you, oh, you're, 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 your kids look so nice, you say, thanks, as if you had anything to do with that. Well, I am guilty of taking credit oftentimes for things that I did not do. Uh, the other day, my wife came home and she said, oh, you emptied the dishwasher, thank you so much. And what did I say? You're welcome. I said, I... I you know, I knew you would want the dishwasher emptied. You are welcome. And then a few minutes later, uh, Anna comes in and she says, Mom, I emptied the dishwasher. Can I add that to my chore list? And, and, and their, their dad was busted. Hey, but I, I, I've got to get the points where I can get them, right? And so, and so if, if it means taking credit for emptying the dishwasher, when Anna emptied the dishwasher, then maybe I just need to have a conversation with Anna a little bit later and say, look, next time, you know, I'll double what mom's paying you if you just let me take credit for it, right? <clears throat> I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all uh, have been guilty of taking credit sometimes uh, whenever we did not deserve the credit. Uh, well, this morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture uh, that that gives credit where credit is due. So if you have your Bibles, I um, encourage you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost all courage and all of Israel was disturbed. And Saul's son had two men who were commanders of the bands. The name of one was Baanai, and the other's name was Rechab, sons of Rimon, the Berothite, sons of Benjamin, for Beroth is considered part of Benjamin. And the Berothites fled to Gidom and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old. When the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name is Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab, Baanai, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. And they came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat. And they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Baanai, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled by way of Arabah at all night long. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and thus the Lord has given my lord the king vengeance this day. On Saul and his descendants. And David answered Rechab and Baanai, his brother, sons of Ramon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress? And when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for such news. 
How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his own bed shall I now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Let's pray. God, as we see this passage, Lord, may we be able to extract the biblical principles and apply them to our lives. Lord, may we see the narrative for what it is, a description of events that have taken place, Lord, and may you, by your Holy Spirit, apply this word to our lives so that we may be convicted of our sin and we may be drawn to obedience. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray as you leave today that you would be careful to give God all of the credit, all of the honor, all of the, the worth that He is due for the things in your life. So oftentimes, we have a tendency to transfer credit or give credit to others whenever God is the only one who deserves credit for the blessings for the goodness, for the favor that He has shown us in our lives. And in times, we begin to steal from God and we rob from God the honor and the glory that He and only He is due. So I want us to, as I did last week, I'm going to very, very, very quickly summarize what takes place. So there are these two characters, Bayanai and Rechab, and they see the opportunity to seize power and to, to place themselves in a very advantageous position. Now, now, we need to look past the gore of the story that they snuck into this guy's house, they killed him, cut off his head, and shows up at, show up at, the, at, at David's court and say, hey, here's the head of your enemy. And David gets mad and cuts off their hands and feet. We need to look past the, the ancient Near East brutality and look at what is going on. These are two political lackeys who are seeking an opportunity to, to better themselves. They're seeking an opportunity to, to use whatever political situation is going on to their own advantage. This ought to tell us that, that the Republicans and the Democrats and any other political party they are not the only ones guilty of being completely immorally bankrupt. This is, this is a reminder that, that the political game has been going on as long as time. That people have used politics, people have used kingdoms, people have used circumstances for their own benefit, regardless of political power, Regardless of, of, I'm sorry, regardless of political party, regardless of, regardless of time, regardless of, of the civilization that they are in, that people, by their very nature, are selfish and they are going to do whatever it takes to benefit themselves. Thomas Jefferson said this. He said, democracy works until the people realize they can vote themselves money and power. And then it doesn't. Because they vote themselves money and power. And so what I want us to see is I want us to see this for exactly what it is. Bayanai and Rechab, they see the opportunity to seize power, to exploit the situation in their own favor, and they do just that. 
they find out that 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 uh, Abner, the one who's been calling the shots, that he's dead. And so now we see the author highlighting a couple of things that the house of Saul is extremely weak. He takes two verses and he does this. He reminds us that the house of Saul and the descendants of Saul are completely weak. Saul at this point has two descendants. He has Ishbosheth is the only one that's alive. And we see in verse 1 that Ishbosheth has lost all courage. Look at verse 1. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, Abner was his his advocate, Abner was his ally until he defected. But in Abner's death, Ishbosheth tells us, the author tells us that Ishbosheth has lost all courage. And then we are told of another descendant of Saul's line, the son of Jonathan. And what are we told about Jonathan? Jonathan's son. Look at verse. Uh, look at verse four. Now Jonathan's son had a was crippled in his feet when he was five years old. From the report of Saul and Jonathan, it came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry, in her haste, he fell and became lame. And so the only two descendants of Saul's house is Isbosheth and Jonathan's son. One of them has lost all courage, and the other one is a crippled five-year-old. What the author is telling us is that Saul's house is all but desolate. There is no threat from Saul's house on the throne of David. And so, seeing the weakness of Saul's house, Baanai and Rechab, they they take it upon themselves that we're going to seize this situation, we're going to exploit this situation for our own political advantage. And they, they, they take the trek, and they go and they sneak into Ishbosheth's house, while he's taking a nap, and while he's taking a nap, they say, you know what, this is too easy. And they kill him, and they cut off his head. And they bring it to David, and they say, David, we have avenged your kingdom. We have, we have taken your enemy, and because of our loyalty and our homage and our, our faithfulness to you, we have, we have removed any threat to you and your kingdom. And David's like, Really? Because Ishbosheth and Jonathan's crippled son was a real threat to my kingdom? David sees right past all that. What I want us to see is that the author highlights the weakness and the cowardice of their actions. Twice he tells us what these unsavory characters did. Look at verse 4. I'm sorry, look at verse 7, and then verse 5. The sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and Rechab, the Baanai, departed, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his nap. And then if you look at verse 7, it tells us again, he, he emphasizes the fact that they did this while he was sleeping. When they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. This was not a, a battlefield moment. This was not a time whenever, whenever the enemies of Israel fought, uh, met, the, uh, met Israel on the battlefield and, and Israel was vindicated. This is not that. This is a, a man who is taking a nap and these, these thugs walk in and they kill him while he's in his bed. And the author reminds us 
of the cowardice and the, the weakness of their actions. The author does this because he wants us to see past what they're peddling. You know, we live in a world today that presents to us a reality that is not reality. We live in a world today uh, of reality television. Whenever I was young, not long ago, whenever I was young, MTV came out with a show and it 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 was revolutionary. It was a show called The Real World. And The Real World was intended to depict reality. What they would do is they would take all these people and they would cram them into a house and then they would just videotape them. Well, that's not reality. Because last time I checked, you don't just move in with random strangers and, and interact and, and, and you know, sleep with one another and party with one another and, and do all that. That's not reality. And then, and then they, there, was, there was another show called Big Brother or Big Brother's House or something like that. And, there, there's, there's, there was, and then there was a show called Survivor. You know, that, 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 that kind of partnered, you know, uh, game show with reality and they would take these people and put them out in the wilderness and, and, and they would pit one team against another team and they would vote somebody off every week. That's not reality. I can't even get my wife to go camping in a tent with us and, and you're expecting me to believe that, that, that going out and spending, spending weeks at a time in, in, in the wilderness is reality? It's not reality. We live in a world that is dominated by social media. And through Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, we attempt to portray a reality that is not real. And what the author is doing here in 2 Samuel is he is challenging the reader to look past the apparent to see the reality. And I want to challenge you to do that, church. When you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and you see your friends that have posted all of this stuff about how how wonderful their husband is and how perfect their marriage is and how great their children are. I want you to look past the apparent and see the reality. If someone has to constantly tell you how wonderful their wife is or how wonderful their husband are or how wonderful their children are, see what they are really saying. They are hurting. Their life is not wonderful. Their husband is not kind. Their wife is not the greatest thing since sliced bread. They are trying to portray a reality that is not reality because there is a void, there is an emptiness. When someone tells you everything that they're doing every second of every day, they are needing validation, they they are empty, they are hurting. And I want us to see past the apparent to the reality. I want us to avoid the temptation to create a reality that is not real. What benefit does it do for the kingdom of God? benefit does it do for us as Christians to portray a reality that is not real? 
Would God not be more glorified when we demonstrated the reality of our life? Would God not be more glorified whenever we use social media for what it was intended to, to develop and strengthen relationships rather than brag and boast about a life that we don't even really experience? Avoid the temptation to buy into a false reality. See through that. That's what the author was intending here in 2 Samuel. He says, see through this. He said, Baanai and Rechab, they, they show up and they, they kill Ishbosheth in the middle of the in the middle of his nap. There's, there was nothing brave, there was nothing courageous about that. That was weak, that was cowardice. See past the the falsehood in order to the reality that these were weak, cowardice people. And I want us to notice what they do as they try and portray their events as something wonderful. Look at their response. Look at what they do. Verse, not, verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David as if they had done something courageous. They were not in any way ashamed of what they had done. They bring the head of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and they bring it to David and they brag and they boast. And look at what they say in verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Behold, this is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance to this day, and Saul and all of his descendants are dead. They say, Look at what God has done for you through us, through the vessels of the Lord. We have avenged your house. We have avenged you, the king. We have done this to honor you and remove any threat to your kingdom. They try and use theology. They use theology to justify their own sinful behavior. Hear this, church. When Jesus was led into the wilderness by Satan, the temptations that were given to Christ in the wilderness were all Satan quoting Scripture. Satan himself used theology to justify sinful behavior. That's exactly what what Baanai and Rechab are doing. They are trying to convince David using theology to justify their own actions. And the church is just as guilty today. We use theology to justify our own bigotry. We use theology theology to justify our own hatred, our own sinful behavior. The Christian church protests outside of the abortion clinics, attacks doctors, burns down abortion clinics, all in the name of Jesus. I believe that Jesus would advocate for the church to love the single mom rather than protest the abortion clinic. I believe that the church would do well 
to follow the lead of Jesus. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, where are they that condemn you? Neither then do I. Go and sin no more. Instead of using our theology, our piety, to justify our sinful behavior, the church uses theology to justify its legalism. We say you've got to, you've got to follow this rule and, and follow this dress code and, and, and sing these songs and, and look like this in order to be accepted by God. Whenever Jesus said, come to me all those who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. When Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, the, the publican, says I'm going to your house. reaches out to the lost, to the broken. Church, it is high time we stop using our own theology to justify our sinful hatred and bigotry. That's what Satan does. That's what Bay and I and Rechab did. But I want us to notice David's response. David could have bought in. David could have said, man, thank you guys. You know, it's one less guy i got to go and kill. One less, one less military strike I've got to do. One less, one less military expedition I've got to send my people to, to remove the, the threat against my kingdom. He could have, he could have bought in hook, line, and sinker. He could have, have given them positions in his cabinet. He could have, he could have bought in. But David's response is telling. Look at verse nine. David answered. David answered Rechab and Baanai, his brother, sons of Rimon the Beerthite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress? That last, who has redeemed my life from all distress, is not a question. Notice there's no question mark there. What the author is saying, what David is saying is, it is the Lord who lives. It is the Lord who has redeemed my life from all distress. It is the Lord who has protected me from Saul. It is the Lord who has protected me from the enemies of the Philistines. It is the Lord who has delivered me from the hands of my enemies. It is the Lord who has sustained me. I want us to notice a couple of Psalms that David himself wrote. Psalm 103 verses 2 through 5. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the edge, like the eagle. We see, we see David saying, we see David saying, it is the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Look at what he says in Psalm 121. In Psalm 121, verses 1 through 3, David echoes those thoughts. He says, from where does my help come from? Look at what he says. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does, where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not allow your foot to slip, nor will he sleep or slumber. It is the Lord 
who is his deliverer. The Lord is his help. The Lord is his salvation. And I want us to understand that David could have fallen into the temptation to to give them credit, to give heed to them. But he avoids this temptation. He understands where his deliverer is. He understands where his salvation lies. And it does not lie in the hands of man. I want to point out something to you. In Exodus chapter 32, flip over to Exodus chapter 32. Many people miss the story of the golden calf. Very, very briefly, I'm going to recap this story for you. Uh, uh, God, has delivered it, uh, God has delivered the Israelites through Moses uh, from Pharaoh. They've crossed over the Red Sea. They have uh, entered, into, uh, entered into this wilderness. They're about to enter into the promised land. And, and Moses goes up on top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while he is down at the bottom of the mountain, the people get, get tired of waiting for Moses. And so Aaron, Aaron gathers up all of the jewelry and he, he creates a golden calf. He melts it down and he creates a golden calf. And most people read this passage and they see, well, well Israel is worshiping a false god. They are, they, are, they are worshiping a golden calf. But that's not exactly what Israel is doing. It's not just that they're worshiping this golden calf, but I want us to look at what it says in in 32 verse 8. They're worshiping this calf, and what are they saying? They are attributing what God has done to a false god. Look at what it says in chapter 32 verse 8. God says, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and they have sacrificed to it, and they have said this. Look at what they have said. They said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They have attributed what God has done to someone or something else. That's idolatry. We don't worship golden calves. At least I don't think. But we practice this very same idolatry. We attribute to others that which God has done. Instead of recognizing that all that we have, all the blessings that we have, all of the ability that we have is a gift from God. Giving credit where credit is due. Worshipping the gift rather than the giver of the gift. It's idolatry. David understands, look, I'm in this position not because I'm a great warrior. I'm in this position not because I'm a great king. I'm in this position not because I'm a great follower. I'm in this position because God and God alone is my deliverer. I'm in this position because God and God alone has kept me from the hands of my enemies. I'm in this position because God and God alone has shown me favor. And I believe that too often times in our own lives, we steal and we rob God of His glory because we claim responsibility for what God has done. We think that by our own ability, by our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our own intellect, that that we have accomplished something, that we have achieved something, 
rather than realizing that God and God alone is responsible. And when we do, when we take credit, when we try and, and, and rob God of His glory, that is idolatry. David's response is he understands that God and God alone is responsible for his salvation. That God did not deliver, I'm sorry, that, that, that David did not deliver himself from Saul. That David did not deliver himself from the Philistines. That God is his salvation. That God is his deliverer. David will lose sight of this later in the chapter when David sins with Bathsheba. But right now, David understands that God and God alone is his deliverer. And I want us to, as we conclude, I want us to look at something that ought to bring us joy and ought to humble us. David comes to the end of this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And David dispenses justice. David takes Baanai and Rechab and he has them killed. And he has them put on display. And he does so not as an aspect of brutality, but as a demonstration of the justice of God. David dispenses justice, and we must understand that God is the author and God is the dispenser of justice, not us. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 20 reminds us of this. As Paul is addressing the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 12, he says, verse 17, he says this, He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect that which is right in the sight of all men. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is something that ought to bring us comfort and joy. That those who do evil against the Lord, those who do that which is wicked and that which is, that which is detestable to God, that God is still in the business of justice. That God in his due time will bring to justice those who have, those who have done evil and wickedness against his name and those who have, who have propped up themselves and those who have sought to do right by themselves rather than God. That God is the dispenser of justice. And we must trust him to do justice in his time. And it ought to remind us that we are not in need of justice. We're in need of grace. Because if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we behave like Bay and I and Rechab. We seek to do that which benefits ourself. Even if it means, even if it means dishonesty and treachery. We are in need not of justice, but we are in need of grace. And the good news is that God gave us grace in the person of Jesus. It tells us that God demonstrated His own love, His great love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were deserving of justice, while we were deserving of wrath, 
God sent forth His Son, Jesus. God demonstrates His great love towards us and that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. The great grace that God has given us is evident in the person of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you know that you deserve justice, the good news of the Gospel is that God has given you grace. He's done so in the person of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been using theology to justify your own sin and your own bigotry and your own hatred. God is calling you this morning to repent. Maybe this morning you're here and you've been taking credit for that which God has done in your life. You need to give credit where credit's due. You need to give God the glory for that which He's done. Just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. As we do, I pray that you may find yourself obedient this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You that You that You are God who deals with us not according to our sin, but You deal with us according to the greatness of Your compassion. Well, that while You are a just God and You do repay wicked and evil, You exercise judgment and wrath. I am so grateful that You're a God who is abounding in loving kindness and judgment is your strange work. God, I pray for those here this morning who are deserving of wrath and judgment that they may come to the cross, that they may come to Jesus and find grace. For your word tells us that all those who come to you, you will in no wise cast them out. Lord, may you convict us of our religious piety, of our religious arrogance, of using our own theology as a justification for our sin and bigotry and hatred. Lord, may we demonstrate the love of Christ. Lord, may we give credit where credit is due. May we give you all the honor and all the glory for all of our blessings, for all of our achievements, for all of our accolades. May we be careful to give you honor and glory for you and only you are worthy. God, we thank you for Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.